0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. My name is Jordan Fennell. Coming up on the show today, it's sometimes called the Second Amazon, and the Sepik River is the lifeblood of PNG, but it's now become a battleground. Coming up on the show, you're going to hear how local communities are fighting back against logging and police intimidation. Also across the Pacific, pregnancy is a major barrier to women entering the workforce. I'm sorry, we can't hire you because of
2: because you're pregnant. That was the exact words. At that point, I was like so speechless. I, I was dumbfounded. I just stood up and I just laughed.
1: In 15 minutes, you'll hear the stories of women discriminated against because of pregnancy and their calls for action against it. And in about 40 minutes, Fijian cultural expert Simeone Sebuendredre will join the show to unpack the impact that traditional Pacific apologies have on the political world stage. First though, in a remote corner of Papua New Guinea, police officers are being accused of locking people in shipping containers at a logging site. The ABC has visited the community and met multiple people who say they've been locked in the containers or threatened with it because of their opposition to logging in the area. Our PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting has more. Tensions are running
3: high in this remote part of Papua New Guinea. People have gathered to voice concerns about logging operations and the role of police officers.
0: If landowners resist, police threaten us with their guns. You still resist? They lock you in a shipping container.
3: They allege police are brought here to Adwaki in the Upper Sepik Basin by a Malaysian logging company, Global Elite Limited and claim the police intimidate those who oppose the operations. Local landowner, Luke Amil, invited a law firm from Port Moresby to see if they have a case to take to
4: court.
5: When I was beaten by police and locked up in the
6: shipping container, I felt so worried because I wasn't a criminal. I'm an innocent man. Because of my rights to my customary land, I was assaulted. I was inside the container and full of sweat. I wanted to relieve myself, but how could I come out?
3: Lawyer Arthur Dallier believes the role of police could form part of a complaint about the logging operations.
4: And they are not being treated as human beings. Imagine being locked up in containers for days.
3: The company provides logistics, food and accommodation for the officers. But in a statement, Global Elite denies that it's using police to intimidate and threaten people and says it's appalling to suggest the police are tools of the company. It says it has an arrangement with PNG police for officers to be deployed to the area because lawlessness is a daily occurrence. But for years, the country's police commissioner, David Manning, has been saying police are banned from working at logging sites. On a scratchy phone line, he says he's torn up any agreements put in place by his predecessors with logging companies across PNG.
5: We, uh...
7: Very much committed in, in supporting business by creating a safe and secure environment, but not to act as armed thugs or, or a private police force.
3: Despite that, he says some rogue officers are continuing to go.
7: There's a, a continuous concern about, about the actions or participation of members of the force in,
8: in, these, in these logging camps.
3: The company says because there are no police cells in the area, The shipping containers are used as holding cells for serious offenders before they're conveyed to proper facilities, adding that, quote, murderers and rapists can't be allowed to just roam freely. Environmental activist Florence Tangit, who lives in a village downstream, traveled up to the area to investigate.
6: The time I was there, our photos were taken by the police officers. We were almost placed inside the containers. They threatened to lock us up. They knew we were not from there and wanted to know why we were there.
3: The use of shipping containers has shocked the police commissioner.
7: That is unacceptable.
3: The company says the containers are ventilated and have an outhouse.
1: And that report there is part of a bigger story from our PNG foreign correspondent Natalie Whiting which will go to air on the ABC's Foreign Correspondent show. They'll broadcast in the Pacific on ABC Australia on Saturday, March 11th, 8:20 p.m. PNG time. But right now I am joined by Natalie Whiting to chat a bit more about this. Good morning.
3: Hey, good morning. Lovely to be with you.
1: Lovely to have you on Pacific Beat. Now, Nat, I saw um, promos for this show going out. Uh, I saw you in a boat uh, riding up uh, the Sepik River. Tell me a bit about where you travelled for this story and, and what it was like. It has been an
3: incredible journey. So we managed to get to some remedi- some pretty remote parts of the, the Sepik River basin. So, yes, we went up to... Uh, uh, to the upper stretches of the river between uh, East and West Sepik provinces. So getting there, there's, there were no roads to get into where we we started the journey. So we had to take a, a small plane in there, walk for an hour and a half, and then get on a canoe to to reach our first uh, location. And it was more of that for for the trip. So the team and I had quite a wonderful adventure, a lot of time in canoes and in villages. It uh, it was really quite a a wonderful experience. It's such a a beautiful area. This really is uh, pristine uh, waterways and and an incredible environmental asset. But there is a lot of tension. It's not just logging. There's also a, a mine proposal. So there is a lot going on for the people in this area.
1: Yeah, and you touched on some of that in that story we just heard and more of it will be expanded, of course, uh, on the TV program Foreign Correspondent on Saturday. But what are some of those issues digging into it that people are facing in the region?
3: Yeah, so look, the the logging that we heard part of there, obviously that is a, a big issue for people in the area and in that particular uh, part of, of the region, uh, logging has been proving divisive for, for some time and obviously is a very remote area. Uh, part of the country, and then as I mentioned, uh, there's also the proposal for the Frida River uh, project, which uh, would be PNG's biggest mine if it goes ahead. Now the company's saying that could be nation-building, pour money into uh, PNG's economy, but it has raised a lot of concern for people downriver who who say they think it will threaten the CPIC and the people who live along it. So that's been something that uh, you know that uh, has been rearing its head over the last few years, the sort of uh, opposition downstream to this proposed mine. We actually managed to go quite close uh, into one of the villages uh, right near the mine site, and, and people there support it, but obviously people downriver Uh, uh, don't. So there's, you know, there's quite a bit of tension around that issue as well.
1: Yeah. So a lot of divided opinion. You're saying just at the top there about how far you sort of had to travel to to get to these places. What impact does the remoteness have on the wider region in the Pacific finding out about stories like this?
3: Yeah, it makes it very difficult. I think the remoteness uh, speaks to a lot of the issues. I, I mean, just contacting people was incredibly tough in some of these areas. You know, there's not uh, phone service and it takes uh, quite a few days for people to get in and out of the area. So, you know, things like that. And obviously people who had concerns in some of these remote areas were saying, uh, you know, that they felt they couldn't get their voices heard. Uh, And interestingly, we've obviously seen the response of that from the group opposed uh, to the mine development project, CPIC. They're really... Uh, Have made a a big effort to unite the 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 clans that have concerns to to try to provide a voice for them. Uh, But you know the remoteness, I think, is also a factor on the development front. You know the people who do support some of these projects do so because they're hoping that it will bring uh, money and development. You know there were a lot of people saying that they they wanted roads, they wanted better schools. Uh, You know they're hoping that that this. Might lead to improvements in their lives. So this is very complex, and uh, and I think that's the the thing. You know, this is a, a uh, community grappling with its future of balancing conservation and preserving the environment and culture uh but also uh grappling with these questions of of what the future holds and what they want for their children uh so yeah it was it was amazing to be able to meet so many people and and hear their stories and and bring it. Uh, to the the broader audience.
1: Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to seeing that go to air on Saturday. Saturday. Uh, Nat, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. That was PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting speaking to me there and you can catch more of that story on foreign correspondent that will broadcast on ABC Australia in the Pacific on Saturday, March the 11th, 8:20 p.m. PNG time. You're listening to
4: Pacific Beat. ABC Radio Australia.
1: Now, for many women in the Pacific, the decision to fall pregnant is a really complex one. It may bring feelings of joy and excitement, but also nervousness about the future. And for some, it can mean being turned away from their jobs or even being denied work. But Pacific women say it shouldn't be that way. As Marion Farr reports, they're calling for serious action to combat gender discrimination in the workplace.
7: When 27-year-old Bettina walked into a meeting with her prospective employers, she was feeling confident. She'd nailed the job interview and had an impressive CV, so she thought she was going to get the position.
2: It's for administrative work because I currently study business administration and I've had a few experiences
7: in that field. The managers called her in and said they would love to hire her based on her qualifications, but they just had one final question.
2: Is there anything else that we need to know just in case we'll get through with this interview? We'll hire you if there's anything else. And then I told them, uh, I'm currently pregnant.
7: What happened next
2: came as a complete shock. I'm sorry we can't hire you because because you're pregnant. That was the exact words. At that point, I was like so speechless. I, I was dumbfounded. I just stood up and I just left. I didn't even like bother to say anything
7: else bettina doesn't want to use her real name because she's worried that speaking out could damage future job prospects but the rejection left her feeling devastated and helpless
2: i had to hold in my tears and it was painful because um i guess they won't understand how
7: much i actually needed the job as a single mother in fiji she really needed the money and she was confident she could do the job while raising her newborn baby. After all, she had done it before.
2: I I know I would have done a good job because I've been to this. My first child, I also went through the, the experience of working while I was pregnant, and after that I went back to work.
7: To Bettina, it felt like the employer's decision not to hire her was unfair.
2: That is discrimination, 100%. No doubt. It is discrimination.
7: The experience makes her worried that other women are being turned away from work for similar reasons.
2: When it happened to me, it occurred to me, oh my God, how many other women out there that has gone through
7: the same things? Across the Pacific, pregnancy is a major barrier to women's participation in the workforce. A United Nations report found that across the board, men dominate the formal work sector and are paid at higher rates than women. Fiji is the only country in the region that actually lists maternity as prohibited grounds for workplace discrimination. But Bettina says that policy is not well enforced.
2: My advice would
7: be for them to
2: not be biased just because of the situations that women go through.
7: Emile Vakatora agrees. But not too long ago, she had different expectations when applying for a job at one of Fiji's largest credit unions.
5: A lot of people don't tell their potential employers that they're pregnant, you know, because they'll be discriminated against. So I thought, no, you know, I I should tell them because I'll have to go on maternity leave sooner. So if that's not going to work for them, then I'm okay if they rescind the offer and all of that. So that's what I was expecting, but that's not the response she got. To my surprise, she was like, "Oh, oh my goodness, congratulations! That's just that's amazing news. You're gonna be, you're gonna love motherhood." And she, you know, got up, gave me a congratulatory hug, and um, just was like so excited for me, and told me, started to tell me about her own experiences as a working mother.
7: The hiring manager told Ms Vakatora the job was hers if she wanted it. I was actually
5: quite shocked that that happened, so that was really wonderful. And I ended up um, accepting the offer, and I had full like paid maternity leave and everything, so
7: it was really great. But she knows not everyone has the same experience. In other workplaces, she's seen maternity leave treated as a major disruption.
5: To the point where if if a member of your team had to take maternity leave, it was like, okay, so we're going to reassign every, every client on her portfolio to the girls, you know, so like, you know, because she's gone on maternity leave, you're going to get an extra workload. Because it's a maternity leave thing and not something else, so you know that's the type of environment that most of us, especially here in Fiji, like that we've we've been groomed into. So we expect that type of reaction that they'll they'll tell us that no, the offer's no longer on the table. We can't have someone that's going to go on maternity leave in a few months. She says women deserve better. For me, looking back, going in and expecting them to take the offer away, you know that that's not very. I mean, it, it's 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 sort of toxic. In other parts of the
7: Pacific, there are even fewer protections for women. Kiribati, Palau and the Marshall Islands do not mandate paid maternity leave, meaning new mothers may have to quit their jobs to have children. And for Pacific Island women in Australia, things can also be difficult.
8: The affordability and accessibility of
7: childcare is a big issue. Saina Afaaki is a Tongan woman and senior advisor for the Pacific Women Professional and Business Network in New South Wales. Here in
2: Australia, childcare is pretty expensive. So we can see with a young family trying to start a life and mom trying to get back to work after having kids.
7: It, it, it's not a very good um, outlook there. She says there are also problematic attitudes towards maternity leave. There's lack like of flexible work practices. If you go on maternity leave, I'm not sure how long you're going. They're not very welcoming because it means that they will lose a staff for quite some times. Pacific countries with the highest proportion of women employed in the non-agricultural sector are Cook Islands, Kiribati, and Tonga. Emile Vakatora says there is positive work being done in the space and progress is slowly being made. But she believes much more is needed to achieve true
1: equality at work.
5: Just change, change the mindset. Change the mindset and um, just have confidence in women.
1: Emile vacatore from Fiji, ending that report there by Marion Farr. And- Now, the Pacific region has some of the world's highest rates of obesity and non-communicable diseases. It's a trend also seen in the Queensland diaspora. But with quirky cooking tutorials and culturally safe gyms, there is a growing movement for change. Melissa Makin has this report. In a gym south of Brisbane, Samoan
0: woman Alicia Pepe is putting in the hard yards. Um, I work out. I love working out for myself, um, for my body, also for my mind. She wears many hats, mother, grandmother, entertainer. But despite her tight schedule and lack of sleep, she makes time to train at FitKid. Um, I do it for my family so I can look after them and uh, look out for my grandkids as well. Uh,
6: that's my why, my motivation, my inspiration are my kids, especially working out alongside my daughter.
7: She's my mom and... Her being a part of one of my wives and seeing her work out
0: helps me push harder. She's part of a growing number of Pacific Islanders embracing healthier lifestyles at the family-owned and run operation. It's the brainchild of husband and wife duo Alex and Liz Fongavini, who felt mainstream gyms weren't catering for Pacific families. Here's Alex.
5: If you look at the fitness industry at the moment, it looks so hardcore, crossfit, and it can be really daunting. Like It 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 honestly can. Um, If our mums and dads look at that, Straight away, it's like, I can never do that.
0: Liz says fostering a sense of belonging was important. I like it when they come and
6: bring the kids and they, they feel at home. So that's a big thing for us is making sure that this is a safe space
5: for everyone. If a baby's crying, the our trainers will go and pick up the kids. It's like these strangers are now like family. We look at them as our own children. Um, they're calling us uncle and auntie.
0: The Pacific region is home to some of the world's highest rates of obesity and non-communicable diseases – Sadly, it's a similar story in the diaspora. A Queensland-wide study of Māori and Pacifica Health found people born in Samoa were three times more likely to develop diabetes, seven times more likely to have complications associated with diabetes, one and a half times more likely to be admitted to hospital, and two times more likely to die from an avoidable condition. Trainer Henry Stowers says the stigma around weight in the community erodes people's confidence.
4: A bigger person will come in and see someone that's muscular, fitter, and then the confidence will just drop. But that's the good thing about Fukid. We scale, we we'll scale any movement to that person. Uh, confidence is, is probably another a massive one here in the fitness industry.
0: And as the saying goes, you can't out train a bad diet. Traditional foods like sapasui, corned beef, and coconut cream are a staple in many families, but they're notoriously high in fats and carbohydrates. It's a problem that health professionals at Good Start are working to solve through family cooking classes. That's Samoan multicultural health worker Brent Walwork. His social media cooking tutorials put healthy twists on traditional dishes, usually by lowering fat content. Hi guys, welcome back to Healthier Home. My name is Brent from the Good Start program and today... We are going to be cooking you luau, mamoe and galo. Uh Basically, luau, mamoe is... Seeing like my family go through some health complications that were preventable, uh, really hit home for me four years ago. My sister passed away from heart attack, and prior to that was things like diabetes and other complications that could have been prevented by changing lifestyle. He went on to lose over 50 kilos. I mean, obviously, being Pacific, we still have those things around food and around health where... It's a joke, and people laugh at it, but in deep down it's a serious problem that we have in our community. Bit by bit, are we are trying to change people and change the behaviours. Māori nutritionist Kirstine Kira says their support is tailored to families who may even struggle to put food on the table.
6: Is this going to be realistic? Are we going to be able to afford it? Are we going to be able to make eight portions of it? So we don't want to come in to... Work with our kids and our families and say, you need to do X, Y, Z, but it's not actually
8: achievable for them.
0: Kirstine says getting back to the basics is the key.
6: And our traditional diets before colonisation and, and people visiting us, we really did have diets that were rich in fruits, vegetables, like lean meats, like seafood kind of in essence really just looking to revert back to that
0: that's actually really good, if you like this recipe then you're definitely going to like next week's one otherwise I'm going to go go. (laughs) I'm going to go enjoy this for my lunch, why don't you give it a go too we'll see you next week and Alex and Liz Fongavini agree,
5: fitness is pretty much walking, anything active so if we can just change that mindset within our people it'll help, you want your mums and dads around however long we can we want to do our part to keep mum and dad alive.
1: That was gym owner Alex Fongavini ending that report by Melissa Macon. It's time now to get a quick look at all the news making headlines around the region this morning. And we're starting off in Fiji, where former Fijian Prime Minister and opposition leader Frank Bainimarama has resigned following his suspension from Parliament. Mr. Bainimarama was thrown out of Parliament by MPs two weeks ago for launching a verbal attack on Fiji's president. Now, Inia Saruiratu will be nominated as the new opposition leader when Parliament next sits. And Mr. Bainimarama, says despite stepping down, he will continue to lead the Fiji First Party from on the ground, interacting with supporters and behind the scenes. And sticking in Fiji, more than 500 people took to the streets last night to march in protest for women's rights. It's a part of International Women's Day that happened yesterday and it was during the retake the night march that protesters were calling for an end to violence against women and to make spaces like nightclubs safer for them. Angus Dillain is a journalist in Fiji who attended that march and he spoke with protesters about their thoughts on International Women's Day.
8: For me, I I know what it does not mean. It does not mean cutting cakes and having a celebratory tea party. Um, I believe, yes, we celebrate women and their achievements, but at the same time, it's a time for us to take stock take of the progress that we've made and the work that is still left to do because there's still a lot of work left to do. And I think one of the things that corporations have uh, um, started doing, sort of adapted this approach to women's day as one time in a year where they have cakes and they may give gifts to the women um, staff in the office, but that's about it and that's not what it is about. Um, it's about uh, you know, many more things than just cake. It's like an opportunity
5: to, uh, to celebrate women, to uh, lift other women up. Some people still do the cake cutting and, you know, that's the way they roll. But for us personally, it's things like looking out for our neighbours, looking out for the women and children in our communities. You know, when something's happening, be the person who will call the cops or just walk over to the side of the fence and ask, what is
8: happening? I think even if it is um, tokenistic, the fact is uh, conversations are happening and the discussion is happening. So we celebrate even the smallest wins, even if it means people remember it with a little morning tea, Uh, even if they don't necessarily believe in it. The fact that um, they're talking about it means that the message is going through. I think when feminist movements Organize events, I don't think it's tokenistic because it is an extension to the work they're currently doing and it's part of the work they're doing. Um, whereas I think a lot of corporations, even in Fiji and the Pacific Island region, they are taking a very tokenistic approach. We all get together. We celebrate the successes, the few successes we get. We have to, the achievements of women. You know, there are some people, you know, who do it, you know, the corporates and so on, they have a big breakfast and so on. But, But it still is a celebration, a marking of women and the achievements
1: now, there was just some of the voices of the hundreds of women that took part in the Retake the Night protest in Fiji last night. That was part of International Women's Day. And Angus Delaney, a journalist in Fiji, attended and chatted to those women. Now we head over to Vanuatu, where aid continues to come to help communities following Cyclone Judy and Kevin. Australia has already sent HMAS Canberra and two RAF planes with personnel and supplies to help out. They've now been joined by by France who have sent aid from New Caledonia. France has sent a cargo ship and a supply ship which will help with road clearances, they'll provide drinking water and give medical aid as well. And that's to help most of the country's 330,000 people that have been impacted by those disasters and of course there's still fears and concerns about what they'll continue facing in the coming weeks including potential food shortages and we'll of course keep you up to date here on Pacific Beat on any developments that go with the aid for cyclone Judy and Cyclone Kevin. My name is Jordan Fennell. Are you with me here on Pacific Beat? Salination, coastal erosion and loss of food crops are a daily source of frustration for the people of Kiribati. The health charity Medicine Sans Frontiers says these environmental problems, which are thought to be climate change related, are adversely affecting the health of children. It's recently deployed Australian paediatrician Dr Joanne Clark to Tarawa after the country was without a children's doctor. Dubravka Valada spoke to her we're surrounded by water on, on
6: both sides, as the ocean and the lagoon. And what people tell me is that whenever there is a king tide, it seems to, you know, get kind of worse as the years go by. So we've seen areas of the island where roads have been damaged to people, Houses so that people you know, struggle to to reach their houses. Um, at the hospital itself, we back onto the ocean, um, and there's been days when the when there's been a high tide and you know water comes over the wall at the back of the the hospital. And being in an environment surrounded by salt water as well kind of affects all the equipment that we use in the hospital. So lots of things go rusty and and don't. Um, last as long as we would expect them to because of the kind of general condition.
7: As we know, climate change is affecting Kiribati quite a lot. What sort of effect does that have on, I I guess, children's health in particular?
6: So I think the things that we see um, related to the the local environment and, you know, also related to to the climate would be um, to do with the kind of quality of the, the soil here on an atoll so it's um, mostly sand and with the rising sea levels um, the ground is becoming more salinated so um, they have a lot of difficulties growing um, fresh produce so access to um, fresh vegetables fresh fruit is quite limited and the other problem we see is to do with access to clean water Uh, Most people rely on water from wells. um, And, you know, if the population increases and um, the demand of water increases, then the kind of availability of water. Becomes limited, so we see a lot of diarrheal illnesses, um, which would be related to maybe poor access to clean water, and then you know we we see a lot of malnutrition, um, which can also be related to the kind of diet that's available here as well. Um, and currently, we're seeing a lot of respiratory illnesses. Um, so again, you know, the, there's parts of Tarawa that. Are Overcrowded, um, as people have moved from other islands to, to this island, um, you know, you've got crowded living conditions. Um, many infectious diseases can spread quite quickly. So, you know, one person in a family becomes unwell, and soon lots of people are unwell.
7: So, would you say that you see a link between you know the impacts of climate change and children's health?
6: I don't know if I can give like a definite answer towards that, really. But there's definitely a you know a link with the the environment that people live in and their and the illness that we see with children, so I couldn't give you like a definite answer about the, like you know, the definite link between the two.
7: As a way forward, how do you think the situation could be improved?
6: There's different ways to look at it. There's the kind of public health aspect. So trying to improve people's living conditions in general. Um, trying to reduce overcrowding, improving access to kind of clean water and um, kind of good sanitation, and also trying to improve um, kind of access and also affordability of good food. Um, so that's kind of one aspect, and then the other aspect of more related to, to the hospital and is to do with the kind of human resources. They struggle to um, have kind of enough doctors and, and nurses working in the hospital. And, you know, subsequently they've, they've ended up in a situation that they don't have a paediatrician. So I think also, you know, supporting the the country in being able to train staff and also retain their staff and also giving opportunities to the doctors to do specialty training. Um, it's difficult because they have to travel overseas to do any sort of specialty training. Um, so there's obviously kind of cost implications, but also, you know, people have families, people have responsibilities. So it's difficult for them to, to leave their homes for several years and um, work, work overseas to get their specialist qualifications.
1: Dr. Joanne Clark talking there to Dubravka Volader. When the Pacific's leaders descended on Fiji for the Pacific Islands Forum recently for the Special Leaders Retreat, they were met by a ritual of writing past wrongs. A highly valued whale's tooth was presented to the 18 Pifliers who sat on a stage watching as the Mataningasal ceremony was performed. Here's what that sounded like. traditional Fijian apology is the latest in a string of widely publicised apology, notably including former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's Ifunga, the Samoan tradition of asking for forgiveness when she said she was sorry for the dawn raids. To dig into the significance of these apologies and their impact, I'm joined now by Simeone savu the Executive Director of the Cultural Knowledge NGO, Salvaka. Good morning.
4: Good morning, good morning.
1: Simeone, let's start with that Mata Ningasau ceremony. Can you tell me a bit more about how it works and what significance it holds in Fiji?
4: Thank you very much, the Mata Ningasau. Nga is a reed. It features in the traditional lunar calendar, which coincides with April. It signifies seasonal crops and food like the Nduruka or the Fijian asparagus. It uh, Its absence signifies impending natural disasters like cyclones and floods or droughts and the word mataningasau means face of the reed. In the traditional context, a trimmed and clean reed is pronged by the offending person or persons at the front of the house of those who were slighted. This blocking of the reed is like a statement of intent by the offenders, that they are ready or keen to correct the disordered relations. And reconciliation takes place when someone from the slighted party snaps the, uh, the reed in two, and which uh, when this is done, the offended party is ready to dialogue with the offending party And that that is followed by the presentation of Kava Roots or Sebu Sebu, just to open up the dialogue space. Once the dialogue is satisfied, a ways tooth and gifts are presented with words along other lines uttered on burning the hatchet or which is called Mbulu Mbulu. And this very solemn solemn ceremony becomes emotionally charged on both sides because the words spoken during the ceremony are higher diplomatic words that articulate relationships, uh, commonalities, uh, specialities, uh, which focus on reordering the disordered as a way to peace. That's the context mm. of the uh, yeah. significance.
1: And I, I read that it was quite rare for this to happen on such a highly publicised stage. When you saw it play out, what were you thinking?
4: I was thinking, OMG, because these these ceremonies were made, it created the original context. I think the word or the phrase that comes to mind is time, place, and space. These ceremonies, these traditions were created for the traditional cultural space and context. Which means, in the clan, a tribal relations, a kinship, genealogical relations, with to, to a chief or from a chief, etc. Uh, the crossing over into a contemporary space is a bit fuzzy. Uh, the intent becomes unclear because, in the co- traditional context, the one who's presenting or offering or performing, they are, they have, the, they share the same background. Uh, And the intent is known, and they are related in some way, either at kinship level or traditional role level. It's a reordering of relationships. So I'm still not clear, uh, uh, which then makes me realize or or, or ask, who was it that advised the party that presented, that performed it? Because... uh, it's supposed to be something that's couched and embedded in a cultural context it can cross over, but it must cross over on its own terms, cross over from contemporary, from traditional to contemporary space.
1: And so how does that change the impact of that forgiveness ceremony? Obviously, strong human relationships and connections, the Pacific Way have characterized PIF's uh, decision-making process, the Pacific Islands Forum decision-making process for decades. How then taking this uh, specific Fijian uh, forgiveness ceremony and putting it in this broad political context, how does that change the impact of it?
4: Look at it as a way. um, Two different currencies and currencies operate differently in their own context, their own economic context. There's something that has to be a bridge that connects them. Um, And in this case, the impact would be something um an articulation advisement etc on both sides not on the day preferably a week before a month before because being cultural this has to filter in on the side in this instance the pacific island forum leaders Yes, there are leaders from Pacific countries, but each has their own unique, distinct diversity and cultural norms. My take is the impact may be lessened, may not be fully appreciated, may, and I use that word uh, respectfully, because the bridge to connect, to articulate, to uh, has not, in my view, Has not been thoroughly explored.
1: This particular ceremony was quite highly publicised. As I mentioned before, there's been a a range of highly publicised forgiveness and sorry ceremonies across the Pacific recently. Is there a danger of ceremonies like this, as they gain publicity, of becoming overused as a political prop instead of uh, providing that genuine impact?
4: There is the possibility of it be setting the wrong precedence because the right precedence, or not the right precedence, the right context lies with the chief, the chieftains and the people. Because the original context is these ceremonies are all done to correct uh, disordered relationships between a chief and his or her people. I can see the commonality, the principle but then, the, the question to ask is, who was wrong? What was the slight, what was the affront? And uh, whom, to whom was it, who was being offended? Uh, did the, in, in the traditional context, those offended, they know that they have been offended. And those who committed the, the, the act also know. So my, I'm not clear whether this also is clarif- clear, has been clarified, articulated, and advised on both sides so that it is fully appreciated. It, it may set a, a, a wrong precedent where something is not fully appreciated and understood on one side, one side is fully aware and the other side is uh, not as thoroughly informed.
1: And then when a ceremony like this is taken um, from first the cultural societal context brought up onto that wider political stage, are there any repercussions then for how those ceremonies play out again back at a societal level? Does that have a, a sort of a 360 impact?
4: It can because the 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 fact that it has been uh, appropriated or, or, or applied by contemporary states it sort of begins it can disempower the traditional space because it's like saying um may i borrow this from you instead of asking you, you take and then you present it to somebody without the owners the collective owners realizing that hey you've taken something that belongs to us have you even asked us first so again the the time place and the space the those notions the time and the place was contemporary the space what was applied the right space is a cultural context. May not be a uh, hand in glove fit. May not be, but then it could have been if there had been preparations done on both sides to fully appreciate and for questions to ask, etc. What has been? Who has been slighted? Why are we being? Uh, why is this being done to us? Why are we doing this to them? What is the error? What is the? the mistake? The what is the front? These were questions that were assumed to be answered, but I think it does not f- apply that way because the background... Simeone, uh, so sorry.
1: I, we're just coming up to the top of the clock, but this has been absolutely fascinating chat. Thank you so very much for joining me here on Pacific Beat this morning. That was Simeone Savuindredre, Fijian cultural expert speaking with me there. Have a great morning.